morning. If I can get there. Oh, well. I'll start when you get ready. Of course, I may not finish till noon. <laughs> All right. Somebody got a roast on. All right. If you would open your Bibles this morning to Second Peter. First chapter in the fourth verse, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, and we're going to continue our study of, of uh, this amazing little book in relationship to how do we live in the last days. Uh, in the last days, as the sign says out front, virtue for now, virtue for today, and the last days is noted by a total lack of it. It just gets worse, and as we can see around the world, that's what's going on. They define virtue by what, what benefits them the most instead, and actually what makes them the most money in a lot of cases rather than what is right and proper according to what God's standards are. And so we are in a battle, and if we want to be overcomers in the last days, we need to know what God wants us to do. And there are things in Second Peter chapter 1 that he wants us especially to be connected with for all of the church age. It's not just applicable to the last days, but when you get to chapter 2 and 3, which deals with the last days, it's especially applicable to the last days because this is going to be part of where the battlegrounds are, are, are defined and fought. So before we begin, let's uh, take just a few moments for silent prayer to uh, uh, get all the junk out of our souls like uh, OU's devastating loss <clears> of <throat> TCU yesterday, but we can rejoice that Oklahoma State beat Baylor. So there's a lot of things that, that we have to rejoice for, but those that's not what we need to be thinking about now is who won what football game uh, yesterday. That's in the past. We need to look at what does God wor- God's Word say for us today. So let's take this time get the junk out of our heads, or try to, and then decide to focus on that which is real spiritual food. That's God's Word. Let's pray. Father, again, we are so amazingly blessed that we can come together in a free country still and open up your Word. And Father, we just thank you for that. It is a freedom and a privilege we take too much for granted, and yet it took a great cost to get here. Just like our so great salvation took the cost of of your son. And Father, we uh, sometimes don't appreciate that like we should. But Father, I pray today that as we look into your word, that indeed we would uh, realize Peter's final uh, command to us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let us indeed uh, grab hold of that uh, injunction and let it be a part of our souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, in Second Peter chapter one, in the first verse, he says, "Simon Peter, a bond servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received by divine allotment an equally valuable faith." Now, it's a fancy way in the Greek to say that we're we're all the same. Uh, believers are all the same. There's no, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We are the same in Christ Jesus. He says, by the righteousness of our God, even Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So our God is Jesus Christ. He's God that became man and dwelt among us. He is not a man who got good enough to become God. It just doesn't work that way. And he uh, he is the word. He is the living word that has been there before the existence of the heavens and the earth and the universe. In verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of the God, even Jesus our Lord. And verse 3, since his divine power has granted by decree to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and virtue. Now, <clears throat> what we find in the, the opening introduction, first couple of verses there, is just the whole issue of grace and peace. <clears throat> I've been working on Ephesians again lately to get the notes ready to publish on the, the Internet. And guess how you outline the book of Ephesians? First three chapters are grace, and the last three chapters are peace. It's an easy way to outline it. Grace and peace. And that's what this is about, too. And this is Peter, a different author, talking to us about the same thing. And it says he's granted by decree... What, what else do you need in your life to have a that which is really life and to live a godly life? Granted to us, isn't that believers? He said he gave it to us already. So it's kind of like we've got, got it on the inside. We need to unwrap it. It needs to be unveiled within us so that we can understand what he's really talking about. And <clears throat> a full knowledge, an epinosis of him who called us, and he called us into his own glory and virtue. Now, his own glory is all about who he is. His virtue is his character. It is his unique character that he said, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Now, verse 4, <coughs> he's invited us to partake of who he is. Now, <coughs> not just anybody, because Peter, again, is writing to believers. It can be used evangelistically. The book quite easily can be in Second Peter, but he's writing to believers. He says, for by these. Now, as you study exegetically and you take a look at the, the Greek and how it works, you also have to realize when it says by these and when you have a pronoun, etc., you have to identify what that pronoun is talking about. This demonstrative pronoun, by these, which is glory and virtue. It's picking up what he just talked about in verse 3. Okay. He's invited us into his own glory and virtue. For by his glory and virtue, he is granted by decree. Now this, again, this CTLT is a corrected literal translation. And that's the word doreomai. Doreomai is a word that very clearly means to grant something by decree. And it's a perfect tense. Now, I know sometimes people don't get excited about perfect tenses. Uh, people who study Greek get excited about perfect tenses because most things are in the present and the era. So whenever you run into a perfect, you go, okay, stop and pay attention because it means the action is done and the results keep going on. So he has issued a decree. It's not something that, hey, okay, if you want to, maybe it's the way to do it. But he said, okay, it is a decree. He says he is granted by decree to us who what has this faith, thus has this grace and peace. He says his precious and magnificent promises. Precious is a word, timios. Timios is a 
derivative of time, which is a word that means weight or honor. You normally see it translated as, as honor. Timios is used to describe that which is valuable and precious. It's, a, it's an adjective. And, it, and magnificent. And you notice I have even magnificent. This is a grammatical construction called the Granville Sharp Rule that sets up a... I don't, you probably don't want to hear this, but anyway, it's a definite article with a noun followed by a and, chi is the Greek chi, followed by another noun that doesn't have a definite article with it. And they call it the Granville Sharp Rule. It was grasped, grabbed hold of back in the 1700s by Granville Sharp. And what it does is establish an equation. So it, when it says, the precious, even, magnificent. It's using magnificent to further define precious. Magnificent is the word magistas. And it's the only place it's found in the New Testament. It's a superlative. And it precious and uh, even greatest promises. The greatest. So it's a superlative degree. Now, to us, who's that? This is the church. We've been given some the greatest promises. Now this goes back all the way to Noah and the Noahic covenant. No more water on this earth. It goes back to Abraham. He's saying that there's a special place for the church in the plan of God. In order that by them, here's again the pronoun, by these promises, them is the promises, you might become. Now I love this. It's the word genomai. means to become something that you are are not. It's an aorist tense. It's a subjunctive. It says it's a potential for you as a believer to become this. Aorist is a point of time. So you can look at it and look at the, the point of time when the process really is complete. That you might become partakers. We talk a lot about fellowship in the church and rightly we should. Koinonos is the word that's used here which means a partaker a sharer, a fellowshipper. Now notice, you and I are not going to become the divine nature. Why make, even make a statement like that? Because in Hinduism, which really has taken over our country, whenever we start worshiping nature and the environment and all that, that's Hinduism. That's all that is in a Western suit. And so it, it, it says that you might become a partaker of the div divine nature. It doesn't say that you're going to become a divine nature. You're going to fellowship with the divine nature. Divine nature is theos, T-H-E-I-O-S, uh, a little different. That's where we get the word divine from. And phusis is the word that's used to describe the inherent uh, power or constitution of a person or a thing. It's very nature, in other words. Who is God? God has his own nature. He has his own character. He is totally unique. And he's going to stay that way. And he says, you can partake. Now, how do we partake? Because that's the question we're going to ask and answer as we look at, look at this verse. Because why? So we will be able to appreciate his glory and to be a partaker of his virtue. Okay? Now how important is virtue at any point in history? Much less in the last days. It's extremely important. And right now it has been trampled underfoot. 
and sadly by a lot of Christians. They see no importance in it. There are things going on in churches today that are absolutely scary. That um, they're doing, uh, I'm not even going to go with, you know the examples. Uh, I can quite easily. They're, they're involved in things they shouldn't be involved in. Uh, all the LGBTQ, RST, X and Ys that are out there. You know what? They can choose to do what they choose to do. But the Bible calls it a sin. So how are we going to view it? The church needs to view it as a sin and treat it accordingly. Now, there are other sins too. But the church got soft on sin all the way down the line, so it's kind of hard to say anything about these things now that they pop up. So do we want to embrace those as things that we see as legitimate and valid? And I think the church should say no. They should say no. But they have chosen to say, oh, it's okay. Are any of those things deadly that you can't be saved from? Not a one. There's only one sin. And that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that is calling the Holy Spirit a liar about who Jesus is all the days of your life. Because every unbeliever is a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit until they accept Christ. That's, what, that's the way it works. So <clears throat> that by these promises you can become, become a partaker. So once you are born again, we are babies, and it takes a while to get enough vocabulary, enough growth, enough education to be able to, to realize what, who is this God and how do we partake of that. It says, partakers of the divine nature... And then, Aris participle, having fled. This is apophugo. It's word used three times. We'll see it the other two times in the next chapter in verse 18 and 20. And it's antecedent action. It's Aris participle to the word become. Having done this. And fugo is a word that means to flee. And apo means away from. So it means to get away from something. Having fled the corruption. The corruption is phthora, used nine times uh, in the New Testament. It's used in Galatians uh, 6, 8, and it means to be brought into an inferior or a worse condition. That is in the world, so is it present in the world? Yes, it is. How? By lust. Lust is epithumia. And I always wonder, when I first started studying Greek, and I started going through all the word studies because that's the way you were taught to do it. You take a word, you find everywhere it's used in the New Testament, figure out how it's used in the New Testament, and then you come to an understanding of it. Thumia is a word that comes from thumos, which is a word that means anger. And epi means anger on anger. And so how does this get from anger on anger to lust? That's a question you have to ask. The way it does it is because whenever we have unfulfilled expectations, things don't go our way, the traffic light turns red, the sound system doesn't work. Whenever we have unfulfilled, our team loses badly on the football field, unfulfilled expectations, then what happens when we have unfulfilled expectations? We get mad. Okay, We get mad, and we get mad on top of mad, and that can 
carry over to fame. See, if you have a lust for fame and you're not getting it, that's epithumia. There's an anger that comes with it. So inherently in a lust, it is anger-driven. And that's what we should learn from, from the Greek. And it's the anger of unfulfilled expectations. Now, <clears throat> the first point is heed the call to his glory and virtue through the full knowledge of Christ and receive indescribable blessing. Indescribable blessing. To be able to fellowship with the Almighty, what an invitation that is. Because it was not without cost that we could even come into his throne room. But that is an incredible blessing, an indescribable blessing. See, we may have all these blessings, but it's kind of like maybe Christmas when you got all those packages under the tree. You kind of think there's something cool, but till you unwrap them, you don't really know what's there. And why are we always trying to figure out what those presents are instead of what the gifts are that the Lord gave us? At least 50 things. At least 50 things the moment you became a believer and you get to spend the rest of your life coming to unwrap them and appreciate them. And what a blessing that is as you find out more about who the giver is. Because it's not about the gift as much as it is the giver. Because those gifts take us to the giver. The blessing involves a realization of the everything that he has given us for life and godliness. Now I think about Paul. You follow the Apostle Paul. You have to kind of follow it on a 30,000 foot overview. But how did he start out? Started out as a Pharisee. What did he want to do? Destroy the church. What did he? What actions did he take? He got decrees. He got authority. He got power. And he set out to destroy the church. That's who he started out. It was a lust that he had developed because he was having problems doing it. And the Lord, then the Lord stopped him. But you know what he came to appreciate? Who the Lord is. It took a while, didn't it? Even with the Apostle Paul. To figure it out. And then whenever you read one of his last books, his prison epistles, the book of Philippians. And you read that and he says, talking about maturity. And he says, not that I've already obtained it. Paul, writing Philippians from a jail... And he says, not that I've already obtained it, but I forget what lies behind, and I press forward to what lies ahead. He says, he realizes, even in his advanced theological condition, he's probably the greatest theologian that's ever lived. And in his advanced condition, he says, I'm still moving forward because I've just begun. That's part of what we're challenged to do. No matter how much you know about the Lord, you know that he is sovereign or king of kings, that he's righteous, he's just, he's eternal life, he's love. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent. He never changes and he speaks absolute truth. Do you know those? Do you have the essence of God where you can just spout them off like that? And then the question is, so what? How then shall I live? And what Peter's calling us to do is find out how do we live? It's not just enough to know and to fully believe, but it is better to take what you know and live it. And that's what he's inviting us to do so you can become a partaker 
of the divine nature. Now, <clears throat> he wants us to realize that everything he's given us for life and godliness. And as we go through this, if we'd gone through First Peter first, we'd see that Peter is still on a journey. Thirty years after the cross, Peter is still on a journey of transformation. And he is still learning and he is still growing. Because we know um, the three and a half years he's with the Lord, he was anything but mature. Okay, anything but mature. What about for the next 10, 15 years after that? Took him a while too, didn't it? After that, he got carried away by the circumcision party. You know, and that it infiltrated the church and became a legalist for a while. And now, by the time he writes First Peter, he's a different person. He has been a partaker of the divine nature. He is, he is partaking of what he's writing to us about. Now, we are the recipients of the, the most precious and mag- greatest promises to date. Now, will the millennium get better promises, bigger promises, greater promises? It might. It's already got some pretty good ones in there. But we're the church. And who's the church? This is the bride of Christ. Something that was offered to Israel, something they didn't take him up on. It was quite amazing, isn't it? We are the body of Christ. There's different metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe who we are. We are the building of Christ. These things are, are, are tremendous. Now, the word precious is a word that describes valuable gemstones. Now, that's, that's the passages that they're mentioned in. So you can let Scripture tell you what the word precious is all about. And we look at gold, silver, and precious stones as valuable gemstones. So he's saying that these promises are the gemstones. It's more important to have the promises of God because having and believing the promises of God is far better than having all these earthly precious gemstones. We have these promises that are much better than the things of this of this world. Now another t- place the word is used is for the blood of Christ. He's going to use it later on in this same chapter. Uh, I said here, it was back in 1 Peter that he actually used it. And he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the precious blood of the lamb. That's what he's talking about there, how valuable it was. The blood of, of Christ refers to what he did on the cross for us, his work on the cross, who he was, what he did. See, who he was is portrayed by the, the bread in the Lord's table. The cup portrays what he did. So here is, yeah, what are these promises? The word precious, that which he has given to us is used to describe the work of his son on the cross. So you talk about greatest promises that's been given to date. We've been given them. The greatest promises to date are for the royal family of God. <clears throat> First Peter uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, it's probably not on your handout, but that's where we're known as royal family and royal priests to God. First Peter 2, 5 and 2, 9. So the greatest promises to date are for the royal family of God. Now that's pretty neat, isn't it? 
But he wants us to become partakers of them on a different level. He wants us to know what God has given to us. So accept them by faith and have fellowship with God. Accept them by faith that he has given you these promises. Now what are some of the promises? I've been working for a long time on putting together a book of promises for the church. And it's coming together. Uh, we've, uh, I've been, uh, this started, as some of you know, over 10 years ago. And going through and getting the promises out, getting them where they're, where they're correctly understood. There's so many books on promises out there floating around today. I can go buy a book from the 16, 1700s. All the promises of God. But it doesn't tell you who the promise is for, whether it's conditional, unconditional, how long it's going to, you know, how long it's going to be for, what is the time frame that it's designed for. It doesn't tell you any of that. So I'm trying to put together a book of promises for the church. And it's taken some time. Much like a, a study of worship, which requires you look at every word that has anything to do with worship and those that infer it. It's not an it's not a easy thing to do. So I'm hoping to have promises that when you open it up and you look at this thing and you go, oh yeah, that's for me. That's for me. Because you claim a promise and you trust the promise, then you can have peace in this life. Now that that is uh, phenomenal. So accept the promises by faith and have fellowship with God himself. Now the promises include, and this is not an exhaustive list, First of all, the baptism, indwelling, and filling of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, indwelling, and filling of the Holy Spirit. Luke 24, verse 49. See, that's different for the church, isn't it? Baptism of the Holy Spirit didn't happen in the Old Testament. Baptism means identification. And if you understand it to mean identification with something else, then it just opens up the understanding of that word. Because most people limit it. They talk, want to talk about water baptism. There's eight different baptisms described in the New Testament. Okay? And most of them are dry, which they don't realize. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is dry. It's one of those dry baptisms. So the baptism is an identification because the word is tracked back into the 3rd and 4th century B.C. And it was used by the Roman soldiers. They would dip the tip of their spear in blood to identify with the battle that was coming up. So it means an identification. Now we identify with the Lord, with his death, burial, and resurrection. And water baptism is designed to, to do uh, portray that fact. The reality is found in Romans 6. So when you go to Romans 6, you find out that's what baptism is really about, that we identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, which is a picture of baptism, down into the water and back up. And I think, yes, it should be total immersion. And no, we don't want to get into all those fights and arguments about sprinkling and all that stuff. I think it's total immersion. Now, is it three times in, three times out, backwards, forwards, or any of that? It doesn't tell us. At all. And we start doing that, we get legalistic. And when you start getting legalistic, you divide the church. It's baptism is what it is talking about. And the key is, what does it identify you with? 
the baptism, the indwelling. Luke 24:49. Let's see. You think about to Luke. Luke has how many chapters? 24. You think maybe Jesus is resurrected? Yes. Do you think maybe he is uh, uh, meeting with somebody along the way? Maybe the strangers. He's the stranger on the road to Emmaus, and it says, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city till you are clothed with power from on high. That was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1:13 and 14 in him you also after listening to the message of truth the gospel of your salvation having also believed you listen you believed now I love that sequence too because it means that's the way it happens you hear the gospel then you believe you're not saved before you believe like some people think after listening to the message of the gospel of salvation you believe You were sealed in him. See the progression? You were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. The giving of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when he came into us was part of the promises of God. So do you ever feel lonely? All of us can feel lonely. We can feel lonely in a crowd of people, can't we? We can can go to... uh, why do football games keep coming up? We can go to a stadium full of people and feel absolutely alone. Uh, how do you combat that? Who's with you all the time you can't get rid of? The Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, he's on the inside of you. That's a fact. These precious and magnificent promises. You want wisdom? Ask. How far away is he? Is he not going to be able to hear you? Is he not going to hear the prayer? (laughs) He's here. He's inside of each and every one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. So if we need help, Lord help, he's heard. Okay, what does he do? Uh, It seems like he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Right? Have you ever been hurt so bad you just don't know what words to use? Most everybody has. At one time or another. You don't there's no vocabulary that seems to fit. But he knows your heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, and now we have God inside of us. Now that's a pretty good uh, promise that he gave to his church. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So we are sealed with the Holy Spirit with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. I think when we become believers, and it's pretty clear here, we get the seal of God. And I I think in the unseen, invisible world, I think all those angels know whether you're, you're a believer or not. Do you belong to the Lord or not? I think they all know. And some personal experiences I could relate about various mission trips. It seemed to me really clear. They knew what was inside of me. And I knew I had a pretty good idea what was inside of them too. And so, yeah, the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit. To be filled up to all the fullness of God. Those are promises. Now, how about the indwelling of Jesus Christ? See, because the Holy Spirit comes inside and we're entered into union with Christ, but we're not yet indwelt by Christ. 
Galatians 4.19 is one of those neat little verses. And he writes the church, the churches of Galatia. And he says, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. They were already believers. They already had the Holy Spirit inside of them. They had already been sealed. But what they didn't have, they had not appropriated the fellowship with the Almighty yet. They didn't have Christ in them. So it's not just the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is a filling of Christ, the indwelling of Christ. What does that mean? should mean that I want to think like he thinks. You know that old book, What Would Jesus Do? It's a shame that that book was so far read and it had so much legalism in it. But it would have been so neat. But to ask the question, what would Jesus do? Is asking, how should I virtuously approach this situation? Not a bad question to ask. How, sh- how would Jesus handle this? Now, <clears throat> the indwelling of Christ. The next thing is royalty. From 1 Peter 2.9. Here's a promise that we're royalty. You know, the, the queen... Bless her heart. She seemed to really be a good person, strong person, a Christian. It seemed like that's really what she what she was. But I really don't like calling people the royals just because of a bloodline. I would much rather look at all of you out there, believers in Christ, and say, You're the royals. So am I. If we're believers, we're royalty. That's the way it is. We are in the line, adopted into the family line of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now that's who we are. So are you ever feeling down, beaten, and maybe the world's going to get you down, and and, uh, you're just about ready to give up or quit, and just say, wait a minute. I am royalty. I'm related to the king of kings. And the battle doesn't seem to be going too good for us right now, but I know who won. Okay? So I can put my confidence and my faith and my trust in that. Royalty. How about the promises include prophecies? Acts 7, 17. This is a reference there. It's uh, Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. And he's pointing out that the prophecies that were given to Israel were promises. Okay? And sometimes people, they, they look at prophecy in Scripture. Uh, some churches, sadly, have decided that, no, they don't want to talk about prophecy at all anymore. And if you don't talk about prophecy at all, that gets rid of a third of the Bible that fast. Because over a third of the Bible clearly involves prophetic passages. 31,189 verses, over 10,000 verses deal with prophecy. Now, when the Lord says he's going to do something, it's a promise. If it's a conditional promise, that's one thing. But if he says, I'm going to do this, then it is a promise. And prophetic, yeah, it tells what's going to happen in the future. If there's a condition attached, if the condition is met, then the promise is going to be kept. That's what's going to happen. Prophecies are promises. Uh, and I think they're right 
at the center of this battle between God and Satan because Satan would like nothing better than for God to be wrong. He wants God to be wrong on something. Right? Why? Because then maybe God wouldn't be omniscient. He cannot be like God. Okay? He cannot ascend to the heavens like he said he could. So his objective is to bring God down. That's what he wants to do. Just like he went after Adam. Just like he goes after everybody else. That is the way it, that it works. And how's, what's his best shot now? What happened at the cross? Let's see. The Lord's kingship was displayed. His sovereignty, his righteousness and justice were poured out on his son. So that we might have a satisfaction of the sins. The debt paid for our sins. Eternal life was shown. He brought him back from the dead. His love was shown. You know, Jesus went to the cross because of the righteousness and justice of the Father. But what kept him there was his love for us. How about omniscience? God said that all the things that were going to happen, many of which came to pass the week of the cross, and they all happened, things over which Jesus had no control. They still happen. What about his omnipresence? What about his uh, immutability? God's promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's written all over the scripture. And what about his truthfulness? See, if the Lord makes a statement that's not true, Satan would love to find one of those, wouldn't he? So when he makes a statement for us, it is indeed a promise. I Yesterday at Janie's funeral, of course, 1 Thessalonians 4 came up. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's not stated as maybes or ifs. That's stated as fact. And quite frequently, started back under the Hebrew prophets, they would, they would take a perfect tense, which normally is completed action. And they would use it to describe a future event. Now, that's saying that in the mind of God, when he says something, a prophecy might as well be a completed action. That's how sure and certain that it is. And what about airship? You know, you're a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you study airship. We went through a lot of the, the study back in that uh, Foundations 2 back there. He's the heir of all things. And he's the one who gets to split it the way he wants to split it. He's the one that divides it up. He's the one who decides what gifts do we get. Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay. Did he promise you to be an heir? Yes. Galatians 4.28 And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Hebrews 6.11 and 12 We desire each of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So you won't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Is he going to set up and establish a thousand-year millennial kingdom? Yes. Do you believe that? Is he going to defeat all of his enemies? Psalm 110, verse 1. Yes. Do you believe that? 
So while his enemies are getting still an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ, why does the Lord tarry? Because he doesn't want any to perish. He truly doesn't. His son died for their sins too. The most evil, wicked, mean, and nasty people that's ever walked the planet, Jesus took care of the problem of sin. And to see work wasted, do you like to waste your work? Have you ever worked long and hard on getting your computer to work just like it? You wanted it? Like uh, the songs. When we are singing, you're going to notice up there, and it'll probably change because I've said something. You're going to notice the words that you get to sing along with have a black background. And on the back is a blue background. The blue is supposed to be up here. The black is supposed to be back there. Jimmy has spent hours working on that. Seth has spent hours on it and conversing with it back and forth because it never comes up the same way. We get it working right one time and the next thing you know it is flip-flopped on us. You spend a lot of time working on something and then it doesn't work. Is that frustrating? Yeah, well, does the Lord want people to avail themselves of the work His Son did on the cross? Without question. Without question. The airship and the new covenant. From Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. These are promises. We've got a new covenant for the church. Israel's got a new covenant for them. We're going to spend a a good time in the millennial kingdom. And one of the great things, we're going to get to sit down and eat, I think, anything we want. Not going to have to worry about sugar content. Uh, or any of those other things that we have to watch now. So that's just some of what the promises include because we'll spend a lot of time learning what is a promise. Lord, what did you promise me? We receive these promises because we're in Christ. That's why we receive them. He is the promised one. He's the chosen one. He is the child of promise. He is the promised Messiah. And by us being in him positionally, then that's why we get these promises. Now, to fully partake of the promises, we need to escape the lust of the world. Isn't that what the verse said? Having escaped the corruption of the wor- that is in the world by lust. Okay? We have all these promises. We get to partake fully of all of them. It depends. Have we escaped? Now the bonds of the world have been broken the moment you become a believer in Christ. The penalty for sin is done away with, but the power of sin is still alive and well inside all of us. Read Galatians chapter 6. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit is desire against the flesh. Read Romans chapter 7. Paul says, why do I do what I don't want to do? I who want to do good find myself not doing good. Even Paul had a battle with the sin nature on the inside of him. So once we become believers in Christ, we have gained all these promises. The penalty for sin is broken forevermore, but the power of sin is still present until we, uh, until we go to meet the Lord or he comes back and meets us. And then it's broken for good. But to fully, we have to escape the lusts that are in the world by lust. First of all, and the sad thing is that people are being counseled today to just embrace it and go with it. 
and not fight with it anymore. And just say, well, this is the way I am. Well, all of us are the way we are, but it doesn't mean necessarily it's all good. We, we, we have choices to make. To fully partake of the promises and escape, uh, one has first escaped the sen- a sentence of hell. From This is where the word escape is used. So we'll let the scripture uh, teach us what he means to escape. He says, you serpents and you brood of vipers. Now who could he be, the Lord possibly be talking to? Scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? There's only one way. And they're not ready to give up their power to the Almighty. So they're going to yell crucify him shortly after this uh, discourse, the week of of the cross. So if a person wants to partake of the promise, they first have to become a believer. First step, you'd expect to find them. Then flee immorality. Ephesians or 1 Corinthians 6.18. Now this is for, for, for those of us who like rules to be written. And here it is. How hard is it to understand? It says flee immorality. Not hard, is it? Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So flee immorality. One of the things in our culture and society today, with all of the um, wanton and lascivious parades that are going on, all those things going on, this says, you want to be a partaker of the divine nature, Get flee it. Get away from it. Don't be a part of it. In fact, when we start looking at James... Uh, the second session as to how do we deal with this life how do we bear one another's burdens what are we doing that's one of the things we're going to see repeated again in the fourth chapter of James how about fleeing idolatry flee idolatry 1 Corinthians 10.14 therefore my beloved see Paul's writing believers at Corinth no matter how goofy they are they're believers they're called saints in the second verse Chapter 1 and verse 2, they're called saints. And he over uh, he does it in chapter 1, does it in chapter 3. He says, look guys, you haven't lost your salvation. Okay, you haven't lost your salvation. He said, but you better get your life straightened out. Because you're not immune to discipline. And so flee idolatry. Now what is an idolatry? What is an idol? You know, we look at idol making as a, as a vocation in a lot of places around the world and they have they literally have turned it into an art form but any person place thing or event that gets between you and God is an idol purely and simply you can track it through the Bible person a place a thing or an event it can be a house it can be a vehicle it can be a, a, a place that you love the outdoors so much, and that's where you want to go and hike the Appalachian Trail, which I would love to do. I'd love to go on the Grand Canyon and all that. Can't make any of it an idol. We can joyously appreciate that which God has created, and we're called to do that. But to start worshiping it, when you look and see the way the Lord has put this world together, or even the human body, 
but is fearfully and wonderfully made. You just can't worship it. He is a jealous God. And D, guess what? Flee from the love of things. That sound familiar? 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and the snare and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Flee from the love of things. They're nice to look at, shiny to hold, but if you break it, mark it sold. We don't want to uh, put those things in front of our Lord, yet that's so easy to do in the world in which we live. Well, we'll pick it up here next week with this, but uh, flee from the love of things. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your grace, your mercy, your love, and all of your blessings. Father, we ask that we you, that you will nourish our souls with this information. And Father, help us to remember it. And I ask also that the Holy Spirit would bring it to mind over the course of this coming week. Father, I pray that we would also see the importance of hanging on to your promises. Uh, even when the world says don't, let us hang on to what you have said is that which is lasting and important. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.